Um, if we have not met before, my name is James. I am one of the pastors here at the church. Now, have you ever started watching a movie midway through, a movie that you've never seen before? The story is completely new to you. So imagine you start watching the movie uh, Braveheart or The Lord of the Rings or The Titanic midway through. You're going to come into something where there are some intense scenes going on. There are swords clanging, a ship is sinking, but if you haven't seen it from the beginning, you're going, what's going on? How, how, is it, um, how have we gotten to this point? Now, what's even worse is when you've been watching a movie from the very beginning, and then somebody else comes in and sits down beside you and starts going, what's this movie about? Who's that character? Why is this happening? And you're trying to focus on the story, but they keep talking, and finally you lose your cool and just say, if you'd stop talking, I could answer your questions, but I don't even have a clue what's going on anymore because you won't stop talking. Now, Jonah 3 will feel a lot like that if you, don't, um, if you haven't heard Jonah 1 and 2, uh, which we've been studying in the series. So I don't want kind of anybody to be going, I don't know what's going on here today, or poking your neighbor going, what's he talking about? So I want to give some context from Jonah chapter 1 and 2 before we jump into Jonah 3 this morning. And so in the, in the beginning of Jonah, you find that God comes to the prophet Jonah and he says, I'm sending you to the city of Nineveh and you need to deliver a message for me. Speak to the people because they are wicked. Now, instead of doing what God says to do, Jonah does the opposite. He runs in the opposite direction. He gets on a boat heading for Tarshish, which is about as far away from Nineveh as you can get. Now, Jonah has no desire to go to Nineveh whatsoever. And so he's on this boat, and God does not like Jonah's disobedience. And so God sends a storm. And it's a storm um, that is quite wild. The, the, the pagan sailors, it says, they are terrified and they're crying out to their gods for deliverance, but nothing is happening. Meanwhile, Jonah is down below decks having a nice nap. And so the captain goes down and he goes, wake up, Jonah, we need you to pray to your God. And essentially he gets to this point where the sailors are going, um, Jonah, is this your fault? And Jonah kind of matter-of-factly is like, why, yes it is. I serve the God who, who controls the, the land and the sea. And the reason there's this storm is because I'm running from him. And he kind of says it braggingly. He says, if you want to calm the storm, you need to throw me over the side of the boat and the seas will become calm. And Jonah, we might go, oh, what a hero. He's doing this to, to save these other sailors. But in reality, it might be kind of selfish Jonah might be going, if you put me to death, I don't have to go to Nineveh, but my blood is on your hands. Now the sailors reluctantly do this. They throw him over the side of the boat, and the the storm does subside. Now the sailors, it's kind of interesting, in that moment, they pray and ask God to forgive them, and they begin to worship the God of Israel in that moment. Now Jonah's story doesn't end there. In fact, something remarkable happens. It says that a giant fish comes and swallows Jonah, and he spends three days and three nights inside of the belly of this giant fish. And if if you're kind of new to this, you might go, like, that's crazy. Why do you guys believe this? The Bible acknowledges that this does not happen all the time, that this is uh, kind of a a rare event, a a miracle, because it says God's prepared this fish. Also, Jesus recognized Jonah's story as being real, as credible, and so if it was good for Jesus, it's good for for us. Now finally Jonah inside the belly of the whale he prays this somewhat pathetic prayer and I say somewhat pathetic because the words are good but somewhat pathetic in that he never says he's sorry. 
And he doesn't repent for his actions. And so you have Jonah chapter 2 ending with this an interesting verse. It says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Kind of a pretty picture there. And so we pick up in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now we can say Jonah was dropped off uh, somewhere along the Mediterranean coast. And God is saying to Jonah, let's try this again. Go to Nineveh and proclaim the message I give you. Now wherever Jonah was dropped off, he has a long walk to get to Nineveh. Probably about 500 kilometers to get there. Now, there can be a lot of value in a long walk. It allows you to do some thinking, process your thoughts. If I've got something I need to think through or something that's just kind of a challenge, I go for a walk, and a walk will do wonders. It allows you to do some self-examination. It allows you to do some soul-searching. Now, the Bible doesn't say anything about Jonah's long walk to Nineveh. But do you wonder what he's, he's thinking about as he, he goes on that walk? Like, is Jonah, like, praising God with every step, going, yeah, God, thank you, I'm alive, I survived the ocean, um, I didn't have to stay inside that fish because that was gross? Um, is he praising God, or is Jonah angry with God still? Is he, is he going, I don't want to go to Nineveh? Is he still upset about that? Because Jonah's tried running from God, and he saw where that got him. He, he was thrown overboard in, the, in a storm and swallowed by a giant fish, spending three days, three nights inside of this giant fish before being vomited onto the beach. Um, and so this wasn't a pleasure cruise for Jonah. I mean, maybe Jonah's going like, I can't get the smell of a fish out of my clothes and my beard. It's terrible. But Jonah's probably not too eager to see what God might come up with next if he tries to run. And so he, he's learned this lesson, that God's plans and God's purposes are larger than our own personal desires or our own comfort zones. Jonah's also learned that you can't outrun God. And so he's not heading to Nineveh out of this concern for the Ninevites, but more this sense of obligation, kind of going, there's no way of getting out of this. Now, it's easy for us to judge Jonah. We could be like, that Jonah, he thought he could outrun God. What a dummy. Like, what a moron. You know you can't outrun God. And we might be sitting there going, like, Jonah, you should know this. But let's put ourselves in Jonah's spot for a bit. Let's walk a little bit in Jonah's shoes. Imagine God comes to you, and he says, I've got a job for you. You're going to go to an ISIS camp. You're going to go to an Islamic State-controlled city, and you're going to declare this message. Declare to them that in 40 days... God is going to destroy you guys. Now, play that one through in your mind. H how does that end? Does it, does it end well for you? As not only this, Jonah is, is being sent to a city filled with his mortal enemies. Nineveh's people had oppressed the Jewish people for, for many years. Not only is the, the chance of death in Nineveh great for Jonah... God is calling Jonah to potentially prolong the life of an enemy nation which had subjected Jonah's uh, people uh, to, to, um, to being exterminated. And Jonah has also learned that God is going to get his way. And so as Jonah walks to Nineveh, I don't think he's going, I can't wait to get to Nineveh and preach the word of the Lord. I think it's more, I don't want to go, but you're making me go. 
And so we pick up in verse 3, where it says this, Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, Nineveh would have been one of the greatest cities in the known world at that time. And scholars uh, say it was probably about 60 miles in circumference. And from Jonah 4.11, we know that more than 120,000 people lived in the city. And, and scholars are saying, depending on how you interpret that number there, there could be as many as 600,000 people in the city. Either way, it's a large city. And part of the city is walled in with walls that were probably about 100 feet high and 200-foot towers all along the walls. And Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. Um, Nineveh is the symbol of overwhelming power and ruthlessness of the Assyrian Empire. It is an evil and violent city. And so when God calls Nineveh a great city, he's not talking just about the geographic size. He's not talking about the number of people in it. But he's talking about its importance to him, that God has some plans for the city of Nineveh. So Jonah is reluctantly obedient to God's will, and he goes into the city and he proclaims this message, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now that is a very short sermon. Eight words in English, five words in the Hebrew. It's, it's a short, odd sermon. Now some of you might be sitting there going, I wish you would preach eight-word sermons. Um, <laughs> don't hold your breath. But, but like, uh, th- this is odd. Like, Jonah preaches this, this short, odd sermon. I want us to take a look at this message. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. What is missing? Jonah makes no mention to the Ninevites of what they have done wrong. Jonah um, doesn't even give them instructions of what they should do in response to the message. Jonah does not mention who's going to overthrow the city. And Jonah doesn't even mention the name of God once. He simply says, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And as sermons go, we would say that's hardly persuasive. It's it's not very good. It's kind of lacking some content. Jonah's not pleading with them to repent. He's not talking about the goodness and grace of God. His, His message is essentially condemnation and no hope. And so we're going, is Jonah trying to sabotage his own message? Because he doesn't seem to be offering um, much information. It's kind of bare minimum details. Now, one of the meanings of the word overthrown in the Hebrew is destroyed. Kind of this idea, destroyed from the very foundations. And Jonah is not saying that in in 40 uh, more days, Nineveh is going to experience some hard times. Jonah is not saying in 40 days, Nineveh is going to um, have a difficult season. He's saying in 41 days, Nineveh is not going to exist. In 41 days, you won't put Nineveh on the map. And maybe Jonah gets some enjoyment out of delivering this message. Now we have to ask the question, why is God going to overturn Nineveh? In Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, God says this to Jonah in his original instructions to him. He says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And so we know Nineveh is this wicked and violent city. In Nahum 1, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, we see that Nineveh's sins include plotting evil against the Lord, cruelty, plundering in war, prostitution, witchcraft, and commercial exploitation. It It is a city that has a history of evil. And the question you might be going is, why does God give Nineveh 40 days advance notice? Why, why, why is he doing this? Is it so that the people can get their affairs in order, get out of town before things get really messy? 
Uh, Because if God's going to destroy them, why not just get it over with? Or maybe God's cruel. And maybe God wants to, to suffer in anticipation of his coming wrath. It's neither of those things. God is giving them a warning. And while Jonah's not that excited about God giving them a warning and it reflects in his terrible preaching, um, Jonah's message is a warning to Israel. Forty days is a grace period to Nineveh. It's, it's a grace period. It's an opportunity to repent. An opportunity for the citizens of Nineveh to change their behavior and avoid God's wrath. And so God sends Jonah to Nineveh to proclaim 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown so that Nineveh won't be overthrown. And we keep going in Jonah chapter 3 verses 5 to 8. We see the people's response to Jonah's message. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence." Now, in the book of Jonah, people don't behave in the way that you would expect them to behave. You have God come to Jonah, tell him to do something, and Jonah, this prophet of God, disobeys God, and he also is hating on people. You have pagan sailors who don't want to throw Jonah over the side of the boat, but they reluctantly do it, and in response to the calming of the sea, they worship the God of Israel. And now you have this. And the people aren't just like, great sermon, Jonah, short and sweet, I I loved it. But, but they believe it, they, and they're changed by it. And this is surprising after such a weak sermon. Because I've heard some really good sermons in my life. Uh, powerful and convicting sermons. Sermons that were full of um, biblical uh, truth, proof, and evidence. And I have yet to ever see an enchi- entire church respond to a sermon in the way that the city of Nineveh responds to Jonah's sermon. The entire city believes. And the people's response to this message is to believe God, believe in God, and to call on God while fasting and wearing sackcloth. And sackcloth is this prickly, coarse garment woven out of goat's hair. And if you're going, that sounds uncomfortable to wear, it was designed to be uncomfortable uh, to wear. It was was designed to kind of inflict this irritation and this suffering And fasting, wearing sackcloth, and sitting in dust or ashes are religious acts that recognize one's own sin, but also your insignificance before God. And even the animals are fasting and wearing sackcloth. And you go, that that might be weird. But the reason is, is it's showing total repentance for the city. Total repentance for all those who are inhabiting the city. And the order of events here might feel a bit odd. It might be going, why... um, why would the king tell everyone to fast and put on sackcloth when verse 5 says they have already done that? It's, it's kind of like a parent going into their kid's room, seeing their kid like tidying up without being asked, and then going, clean up your room. When are you going to do that? Like, it doesn't make sense. And so what is probably happening here is that first the king issues the order and the people carry it out. But by putting the people's response ahead of the king's proclamation, what they're doing is that the author's highlighting the immediacy of the people's response. They're responding to the warning, not just to the king's command. They take the command or warning personally and seriously. 
But why is Jonah's message so effective that the entire city believes, the entire city repents, that from the king down to the cows, they are seeking peace with God? We don't have all the details, and Jonah is a relatively short book, but I want us to consider a few things. We don't know what other things or events may have been happening in and around Nineveh at this time. We have a snapshot, and maybe God is working through other people and through other events to get the Ninevites' attention. Maybe God is influencing their response to Jonah's message through some other things. We also don't know how the Spirit of God is working in the lives of the Ninevites and the king in particular. But in John chapter 16, verse 7 8, Jesus talks about how the Holy Spirit, he convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And, And for a response like that, we have to believe that the Spirit of God is at work in this situation. Also, Jonah himself probably caught people's attention. A man from another nation shows up in your city and preaches this message, 40 more days and your city is going to be overthrown. That's odd. Like if somebody was downtown doing that in Halifax, we'd we'd probably go, what's going on here? Now maybe the Ninevites investigate into Jonah's story. And and when when they they hear about it, it's it's going to make an impact. Um, Maybe some people heard about this man, Jonah, who was spit up on the sea from a large fish. Maybe Jonah's sharing the message because most men can't help but tell stories of, of great adventure. Like, can, can you imagine they're, they're in the city and Jonah's getting a meal at a restaurant or something like that and some guy's like, ah, you should have seen the fish I caught last week. And Jonah's like, man, I got you beat. You should have seen the fish that caught me just a couple months ago. And so a story of an Israelite prophet who was spit up on the coast by a large fish may have reached Nineveh with or before Jonah. And stories of a prophet who ran from God, was thrown overboard in the midst of a storm, yet survived in the belly of a giant fish would catch people's attention. And hearing this story, this, this uh, experience of Jonah, is, might be what uh, caused the Ninevites to respond the way they did. And so in John, Jonah chapter 3, verse 9, What we see is the king, and this is part of his proclamation, he says, Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And if they heard Jonah's story, they would observe this. God had judged Jonah's disobedience when he ran away by causing the storm and having him thrown overboard, overboard, but yet God had shown Jonah great mercy by rescuing him with a giant fish and allowing him to live. And this story may have convinced the Ninevites that God is a God who must be listened to, but yet there is hope for those who listen to God. They see that God is a God who takes sin and disobedience seriously, but yet offers hope to the sinner at the same time. And and this shows us that God can use our, our story, the story of our life, God can use our testimony, the good and bad parts of it, for his redemptive purposes. And and a quick look at um, church history will prove that this is true. Throughout um, church history, especially the early church, you see that when Christians died faithfully for Christ at the hands of their persecutors, the church grew. In fact, the more you press on the church with um, persecution, the more the church seems to grow. And so people saw that Christians were willing to die for the name of Jesus, unwilling to deny him despite being a tortured, uh, beaten beheaded, crucified, uh, fed to lions, burned on stakes, sawn in half. And uh, they were very creative in the ways they put Christians to death. But people saw that these Christians were not willing to deny their Lord, but would rather die. 
And so they were curious, what allows or motivates the Christian to do this? And they looked into it, and many of them became Christians themselves. But we see that the people of Nineveh repent. They cease to do evil and violence. They learn to do good. The Ninevites are hoping that God, in his compassion and mercy, is going to relent in the coming destruction because of their repentance. And I just want to hit pause here for a second and look at something in the story. The Ninevites, the Ninevites hear the message, they believe the message, and then they repent and change their behavior based on their belief in that message. And this is the order you see it happen again, over again and again in Scripture. People hear, they believe, and they repent. Now, as the church, and I'm talking capital C church, global church, we can easily get into this place where we look at, at people, where we look at culture, and we judge them because of their behavior. Um, we can end up looking a lot like Jonah did. And so we, we turn into these, these curmudgeons, is a really weird word, but it's a good word for it, curmudgeons, who look at culture and go, why is culture so obsessed with sex, drugs, and rock and roll? Why is culture so evil and twisted and messed up? And our, our temptation might be to write culture off might be to distance ourselves from it, withdraw from it. We might think, why can't culture be like us? Why do they do what they do? Why don't they just do what the Bible says? Why don't they just believe what we believe? And as Christians, we can forget our own past. We can forget what God has rescued us from. We can forget what life was like before God saved us. And we can put Christian expectations upon non-Christians, expecting them to live up to the same standards as we do. But a belief like that flies in the face of Scripture because as Christians, we know that we did not arrive where we are through our own power. And so if somebody hasn't heard the message, believed the message, repented, received the Holy Spirit, which through his power allows us to live up to God's standard, how could they live like us? Why would culture or the world live like us? We hear, we believe, we repent. And our actions, our affections, and our attitudes change as we cooperate with God's Spirit. And we don't put Christian expectations upon non-Christians. If, if we're doing that, that's not fair. Because we don't say that you must clean up your life before you can come to Christ. Paul would write this in, in uh, Romans chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. He says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And so people hear, they believe, and then they repent. The Spirit is the one who does the cleaning up. And the church needs to understand this because when we understand this, it's going to change the way we look at culture, the way we engage with culture. We're not going to be shocked when culture is offended by the things that we believe because they don't think the same way we do. They don't believe the same things we do. We will better understand why culture thinks and lives the way it does. We're not going to hold culture to an unrealistic standard, but in understanding this, we can engage culture in understanding and loving conversation. Now let's keep going in verse 10. This is how Jonah chapter 3 ends. It says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. 
And so the hopes of the Ninevites come true. God relents, destruction does not come. And the fact that God, a prophet of Israel, had been sent to this foreign city shows that God um, was offering them hope if they repented. It says when God saw what they had done, they had turned from their evil ways, he relented. And it wasn't until their repentance demonstrated itself in action that God relents. As here we see repentance, it's not just feeling sorry for what we've done. It's not just having a bad feeling. But repentance manifests itself in action. It's demonstrated in how we live. And repentance is at the heart of the Christian message. Why does God warn Nineveh? 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And these are very good verses to memorize um, and just come back to again and again. But it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And so we see God's wrath is going to come upon sin. But repentance means that the ending can be dramatically different for those who do repent. And so unlike the king of Nineveh who has to ask this question, who knows? Maybe God will relent and show us compassion so that we don't perish. We already have the answer to that question. When we're living on this side of the cross, we have the answer. Since God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation, the, that, that means the one who uh, turns away, absorbs the wrath of God on our sin. He does that on our behalf. We don't have to experience that. And we see that God's desire for us is not death, but his desire for us is life. And through scripture, God warns us of the coming judgment and the punishment for sin so that through Jesus Christ, we can escape. Matthew chapter four, verse 17, it says that the primary message that Jesus preached in his earthly ministry was this, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And God warns us now because God loves us. He's patiently giving the world time to repent so that people don't have to experience his wrath upon sin in eternity. And we have to understand his wrath is fair and just. Now God warns us. And the life of Jonah is this warning to Nineveh and shows that God is the God of the second chance. That, that however your life started, that wherever you are now in your life, it doesn't have to determine how your life finishes. But we must choose to take that second chance. Because when Christ returns, that opportunity for the second chance is over. We're closer to that day today than we were yesterday, and we'll be too late. We'll have missed the opportunity. And we are living in the time of God's compassionate patience, giving us the time to choose his grace over his wrath. And none of us are going to be able to plea ignorance. None of us are going to say, I never had the opportunity. And so this is why we, we say this every week, that if you need to make Christ your Lord and Savior, you're more than welcome to come and talk to any one of our leaders, and we'll talk to you about what that means, to choose grace over wrath. But scripture says that day of judgment is going to come like a thief in the night. You're not going to expect it. You don't know when your last day on earth is going to be. Now for those of us who are Christians, what does Jonah teach us? Well, it teaches us, like, like it was for Jonah, that God's purposes and plans are often larger than our personal desires or our comfort zone. 
Um, that God calls us to love our enemies. That God may call you to share a message with somebody you don't like. God may call you to a mission field that you don't want to go to, that you weren't expecting. But what's kind of amazing in all of this, the whole story about Jonah, in, in this way we don't expect it, but Jonah's prophecy actually does come true. This prophecy that 40 more days in Nineveh will be overthrown. In the, in the Hebrew, the word for overthrown can actually be translated overturned, and it doesn't exclusively mean destroyed, but it can actually mean turned over, transformed, or changed. And ironically, Jonah's message comes true in a way, that the people turn over their ways of evil and violence in repentance and seek peace with God. They learn to do good. There is transformation. And so we see that we can't predict how God's message is going to affect someone because we don't know how God is working in that person's life. And however, despite that, God has given us a command. He's given us a message to share, which is the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And if we are a Christian, we say, I'm not doing that. That makes us just as disobedient as Jonah was. And so Jonah simply delivers the message. He does a bad job of it, but he delivers the message. And God does the rest. And from this we see our job is not to save people. Our job is not to make people do certain things. But our job is to be obedient to God's commands. To do what God says we are to do and let God do the rest. And so it's not up to us to save a person. But it's up to us to deliver a message and walk alongside of them. And we have to understand that our lives, the way we live, is part of the message that we preach to a dead and dying world. And so this is why Scripture calls us ambassadors of Christ. And God's hope is that through us, people would hear the message of grace. They would believe the message of grace, and they would accept it and find life. That through our obedience and through God's power, people's lives would be turned over from death to life.